I don't mind who done it, and I like the ones about the police and that. Detective ones are fine. But he sends me these ones as, you know, futuristic things about wars going on. And oh, really? He oh, just chooses for you? I can't stand wars. Hmm? He, just, he just chooses the films for you? No, he does sometimes, but I, I, I usually write him a list, you see? Oh, right. I'll write you a list of recommendations. Yeah, do. You, you know the kind. I like romances. I like funny things that'll make me laugh and take me out of my seriousness. And I, I, I like detective ones. There's been some really good police detective mm. ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I don't like these terrible war things, you know? War, war films. And war, they're not even wars that's happened. The wars that are in somebody's mind. And he's making up new ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, this'll do. Are you are you comfortable sitting there? Yeah. Let me sit back in this. Yeah. Because the most go. important thing is that we're both comfortable. Yeah. Okay. So it's not stressful. <coughs> Let me clear my throat. <coughs> <coughs> okay. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna put these here. So people can hear us. Okay. All right. Um, well, thanks for agreeing to... Hopefully there'll be lots of people listening to this one day. That's the idea, hopefully, right? Hopefully, yeah. Um, so thanks for giving up uh, some of your precious time to do a little interview with me for, mm -hmm. for my podcast. Um, my pleasure. And mm. what I like to... Last time I did a podcast, I basically failed miserably to introduce the person who I was interviewing. So what I've decided to do is um, read a little bit from your Wikipedia page. Oh, okay. Have you ever read your Wikipedia page? Yes, but it's long, long ago. Well, you can tell it's been up for we can, a long time. We yeah. can fact check it. If there's mm -hmm. anything that isn't right, then you can tell me. Okay. But hopefully this will introduce you to the listeners okay. and then okay. we don't need to worry too much after that. So, the Anne Merriman Wikipedia page. It says, Anne Merriman, M-B-E, M-C-O-M-M-H, F-R-C-P-I, F-R-C-P, brackets, born 1935, Liverpool, England, is a British doctor known for her pioneering work and influential research into palliative care in developing countries in Africa. She has campaigned to make affordable morphine widely available. In 1993, Dr. Merriman founded Hospice Africa Uganda. Under Anne Merriman's guidance, this, um, this introduced a model system of terminal care customised to developing countries within limited resources. That's a, that's a terrible sentence. I don't like terminal care either. <laughs> I End know. of life care. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we should change this later. Yeah, yeah. Um, from Hospice Africa Uganda, the Palliative Care Association of Uganda was founded with Anne, and Anne was the founding vice president. On a continent-wide basis, she is a founding member of the African Palliative Care Association. That sounds all... That all sounds right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I read somewhere else. It, I think in something I was looking at... It says, I was the founding vice, vice chair of both Palliative Care Association and the, having got it together, mm. it, we let the Ugandans be the chair itself or the Africans, yeah. and I was vice. Yeah, That's that what makes we did sense. For both associations. Yeah. And then in the little sidebar here, the little like summary, it says, born nineteen thirty five, we know that Liverpool, England, residents Kampala, Uganda, which is where we are now recording this. Nationality, it says Irish slash British, which is true, right? Irish what? Slash British. Yeah, that's fine. You, you sneak in and out of countries on your Irish passport. Did it say that? No. <laughs> we can add that, though. 
Um, education, National University of Ireland, UCD, occupation, medical philanthropist, it says here. What's a philanthropist? <laughs> What's a philanthropist? Um, organisation Hospice Africa Uganda, Hospice Africa UK. Notable work, founder of Hospice Home Care in Singapore and Hospice Africa, presently director of policy and international programmes, Hospice Africa Uganda. And I've just passed over into I'm just passing over international programs, but you didn't need it out you can We can we can yeah. yeah. It doesn't take over till January the sixth, <laughs> so we're fine. Yeah. Okay. Um finally, last thing I just want to read out the section that says honours. First award for International Association of Hospice and Palliative Care two thousand and one for initiating and promoting palliative care in Africa. Honorary fellow from John Moores University, MBE, member of the British Empire. Um, honorary Doctorate of Science at UCD, that's in Ireland, and then Honorary DSC from Edgehill University in Merseyside. And also, what it doesn't say on here is that you were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, that needs to go in. Yeah. That's the big one. Maybe that was written before 2014. Probably. Yeah. yeah. But like, that's a pretty good introduction, right? Mm-hmm, it is, yeah. Well... That was nominated for, for bringing peace... The, the reason for the Peace Prize nomination was bringing peace to people towards the end of life. Yeah, yeah that's an amazing yeah, yeah. Um, achievement. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, it'd be good to know from... It's nice to hear it from Wikipedia, but it, it's also it's even better to hear things from you, yeah. so... Autumn did that. Now, um, anybody can go into Wikipedia and change it. Yeah. So you can go ahead and change I'll, it. I'll update, I'll update and it. That you've just added the up-to-date things. I could even make some things up if you want. <laughs> I'll think about that. Yeah. Um, oh, you can say I'm the author of Audacity to Love, which is coming out as a new As a new edition. A new you edition. know, that's it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, maybe just to start off, do you want to describe where we are now and, and what brought you here? Because it's good for the listeners to sort of hear, hear where we are because they don't, they don't, we could be recording from anywhere, so it's good okay. for them to know. okay. So we're in, we're, in, we're in your house in Kampala? Yes, okay. Um, it's actually not my house. It belongs to Hospice Africa in Uganda. On, and it was donated to them by Hospice Africa in UK on condition that I would, it would be my home for as long as they needed me. Yeah. I'm now 84, coming into my 85th year, and they still apparently need me. Mm. They haven't thrown me out yet. So I'm still here. And so this, this, this has been my home since 1998. And I have my family that are here with me are my housekeepers, who, one of whom has been with me 25 years already. And um, their families are my family. And I, f- I see this as my home now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of wonderful children and, and animals and cats and dogs running around here, isn't there? Yeah. You've yeah. got yeah. So my, yeah, I, it's, we I'm here for suffering for humans, actually, but in fact, I see so much suffering among animals that we started taking in dogs who were being kicked around here. Mm. And um, we've, we've, we've always got on average around 10 dogs mm. that we are looking after, who also double up as our duty dogs to guard the house. Some have jobs and others don't. Some are... <laughs> yeah, well, there's a couple there whose job is to produce more and more and more. That's the Maltesers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they do a good job of that. They do, having had 37 puppies in five years. Yeah. I think it's a record. It could go in the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> <laughs> so can you remember what, what, brought, what brought you to Africa? 
Oh, well, yeah. that goes back to when I was four. Yeah. Yeah. When um, this is what I heard from my mother, and I remember these um, books coming through the letterbox about once a month. But when you're a child, you don't know how often they come, but they did come. And it was a book that was published by sisters who were residents in Paris and had never been to Africa themselves. But they used to take all the experiences of the missionary um, sisters and fathers that were in Africa and write stories. And these stories would be in this book and photographs would be there. And there was photographs of children who were really ill. And apparently I said to my mother, when I grow up, I want to go out and help look after these children. So that was the first time that that, that, that ever came through. And that, that continued in my mind. Um, I don't know whether it was because my mother was telling me that I'd said this, but it definitely continued in my mind. And when I was, when I, when I was 13 years old, I saw this film which came to Liverpool. It was on in the Trocadero, which is no longer a cinema there. And it was advertised in the churches that this film called The Visitation was going to be shown. And it was about medical sisters who, which was a new thing actually, medical sisters who were working in Africa and about Mother Mary Martin who had founded them and her work there. So I thought, let's go and see that. I remember I went with my brother Joseph. We went to see this film. And it, it was amazing. It really stuck in my mind to see Mother Mary Martin on a bicycle cycling around, visiting people in their homes in different parts of Africa, but mainly in Nigeria. And um, I actually have um, an old record of that film still. And even the music of the film is still in my mind. And I said, right, that's what I'm going to do. And I was only 13, but I remember saying to myself on the way home, Look, you've got ideas before, but this is something you're really going to do. Because at those times, Catholics didn't go on the missions as lay people. You had to be a religious to get out of these places. Mm. And um, so I knew that in order to do that, I had to be a nun. I didn't want to be a nun. I didn't like the nuns at any of the schools I'd been at. And I didn't particularly want to be a nun, but I wanted to get to Africa. And if this was the, this was the way I had to do it, I was going to do it. And then my mother had cousins in Ireland, uh, f- five brothers, all priests, and one of them was her favourite, Father Bob. Father Bob had um, been her friend since they were children when she used to go to Ireland for her holidays. But she hadn't seen him for many years because she had stopped going to Ireland when they tried to marry her off to a, r- a rich farmer. <laughs> and um, so he, he, he came over because my, my young brother died when he was 11 of a brain tumour. Very quickly, he was only sick a few weeks when he died. But anyway, um, the thing was that Father Bob heard about it and he came to see her because he wanted to console her in her bereavement. And that was the first time I'd ever met him and I fell madly in love with him as you do as a teenager. And he used to do my hair for me at night and put my rollers in or put put ringlets in my hair. And after he went back, he would write to me and he would always type his letters next so that I could read them properly. And he, he, um, he, he wrote to me and he said, I've been admitted to hospital here, I've got a stomach problem. And he said, you should see the nuns here, they can show their hair and they, they actually have, um, the, they show their ankles, their dresses eight inches off the ground and they can show, and they ride bicycles. <laughs> and wasn't it the same nuns that were in the visitation? Mm. See. So, I thought, well, this is, this is great, you know, this is God saying, sending us a message. 
Anyway, so then we, 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 we started, um, myself and my friend, Pat Ruane, decided that we both liked to mm. go there and do something about it. So we wrote and we wrote to Mother Mary Martin and said we'd like to join. And she wrote back and said, please come over and visit me. Now, the cost of going to Ireland for us was huge because we were literally on our uppers with money. At that time, my father, who was... Yeah, he was a headmaster at the time, but their 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 salary was terribly small, terribly tiny, mm. and um, they were struggling to keep going. The, but this anyway, is the boat from Liverpool. Yeah, you would have had to get the boat from Liverpool to, to yes. Dublin. Yeah, so um, anyway, they managed to get the money together for my mother to come with myself and Pat. Pat told her family that she was going on a holiday with us because she knew that there might be problems for my father who had very strict ideas about what should happen to girls. So, um, my mother brought the two of us across and we came for an interview and Mother Mary was charismatic. She just, I don't know how anybody would have turned away after meeting her mm. from joining her because she was so charismatic. Um, she, she, she was a wonderful lady, but, you know, she actually, you know, you could see she was so focused on what she was doing and she was... You know, and, and yet she had this wonderful love of God at the same time. And so, you know, both of us wanted to wanted to join. So at the interview, when we went over, we had an interview in a medical and we were accepted. But she wrote letters to us later to say we were accepted. So I was thrilled a bit. I got my letter. And then I contacted Pat and I said, oh, my God, she said the letter came. But my father opened it. You see, he was opening her letters. We were 18 at this point. Mm. He opened her letter and went crazy and said, how dare she, no girl of his was joining an order and he went crackers. So that was the end of her vocation. Wow. <laughs> and um, and she, she was doing nursing at the time and um, they even said that she could come and do nursing and order and they wouldn't charge her. He wouldn't allow her to do that. And your parents were fine? They, yeah, they didn't have they any fine. problems? No, well, you see, my mother had, her family had priests in every generation. Mm. And, you know, and even her sister was a nun. She had two brothers, priests, too. Mm. And Joseph was already with yeah. the Salesians. So, you know, my, and my mother had watched me all those years, you know. And we, I was very close with her. More close with her after Bernard died because Bernard was the favourite mm. in the family and the youngest boy. But, um, so, no, there was no problem. My father had no problem either. So, um... Do you think... Do you think... At your, do you think your brother's death had anything to do with your motivation? It's only when I look back and see that I'm involved, very involved with cancer and people who are dying, mm. and that I realise that maybe it did. It's funny that even, you see, my brother hadn't a notion of becoming a priest either. Joseph, and he was in, Joseph, yeah, yeah. He, he, he did his national service. Now, at that time, boys were going at 11. He went after the National Service. And it, when he was in the National Service, he started to look at becoming a priest, but not a secular priest. He wanted to become an order priest so that they were in community. And at one stage, he was admitted to hospital while he was in the Air Force mm. doing this. And the, the, the chaplain was a Salesian, and he was talking to him, and he wanted to teach as well, but as all the Merrimans did. Yeah. I was the first one to break the mold, actually. So, you know, um, so he went to see the Salesians and he decided to join them, you see. Now, 
at this stage I was 18 and he was six years older than me so he was 24 so he was already in the Salesians at this stage yeah but he so he told me that he thinks the fact that Bernard wanted to be a priest and had died that he made him think about being a priest He's, and he, he told me this when he was quite old you know mm. so it could it, it, you never know what affects you in these in these yeah things you know and when you were that young making those decisions you, you probably weren't yeah. putting those together but maybe something exactly. subconsciously was driving and, and my life went through many cycles before I eventually settled into palliative care I mean when I did medicine I wanted to be an obstetrician yeah. and I was second in the class at obstetrics when we in the finals and you know I really wanted to do that and then I realised that in obstetrics you didn't really get to know your people because you're there for their births and then they disappeared and yeah. you know and it, it, I really was interested in, in helping people and getting to know them fully rather than just in and out. It's yeah. quite interesting that those are, those are like two, the two ends of medicine, right? So yeah. you wanted to be in obstetrics, which yeah. is childbirth, yeah. the start of life, and then you yeah. ended up in geriatric medicine and palliative yeah. care, which but is the fact, end of life. In my journey, I did a lot of obs and gyne when I was in Nigeria. I did uh, such complicated things. I... Well, I, I, when I look back now, I think, you know, people here would not believe what we, what we had to do. Mm. There's nobody else to do it, you know. So Did that mean that you learned learn quickly because you just had yeah, to do these things? You had things. to learn quickly, yeah. And, um, yeah, I was in, yeah, but that, that's another chapter of the yeah. life when I was in Nigeria, but it was a, a big hospital with, with, with specialists in everything. It was the second teaching hospital in the whole of Nigeria at the time. Yeah. It was... A, it had central sterilization at a time when they hadn't got it in Ireland and England. Mm. So it was it was um, very advanced. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So and the, in the theatre they had two operating beds so that somebody could be up the the, the specialist would be on one and I'd be on the other. I could shout across to them. Two operating get, beds in the same surgery. Yeah, we'd have, in the same operating theatre. You'd have two beds where operations were going on at the same time. Because of space. Mm-hmm. Because of space, like lack of space was that well, no it, it was the way it was done in those days I think and also because they were teaching yes and we had to give the anaesthetic as well as do the operation you see. we had <laughs> wow. no anaesthetist yeah and we got away with murder actually well, I mean we didn't murder many people <laughs> but a few of them did die you know I mean a few of them died yeah but it, it yeah it, it, it was a very interesting time and I wish I could write more about that time because it's a the whole thing was so interesting, yeah. And I have to do it. a spin-off book. Mm-hmm. I need to do a spin-off book yeah. about those years. Was yeah. it interesting because of just how different it was in terms of the type of procedures you were doing and the type of medicine you were, yeah, and, and administrating. And and because it was a, a big hospital, I did general medicine. I did pediatrics. I did obs and gynae. I did surgery. Mm. I did. You know, the only thing I didn't do was eye surgery, I think. <laughs> and I didn't do dentistry, but everything else I shoved into, you know. And I wasn't there that long, really. I say I was there for 10 years, but in fact, I'd only been there a few years when I, I slipped my disc. And, you know, that didn't recover out there, and they sent me back, and I was home for a few years before I went back again. So, you know, I was back in, in Drogheda for maybe four or five years of that 10 years, you know. Yeah. What was, what, was Africa, what was Africa like when you first... I mean, you've been in lo- many different African countries, but 
What were your first impressions of Africa when you arrived? Oh, I, when I got off the plane in Lagos, I wanted to run back on the plane and go back to Liverpool. It was like going into a cinema where everybody's been smoking and are all sweating. And it was just like that. The air was so humid and so close and so hot. I thought I'd never survive. And then when I got to, when I got to Anawa... I wasn't sweating. I never had been a sweater. I, I, don't, I couldn't remember ever sweating. And I just didn't sweat. And the result was that my legs just began to swell up. It was like walking in wet wellies. And the hospital was in single-storey wards, and you had to walk for miles to get from one to the other. And I was walking in these wet wellies. I felt as if I was in wet wellies for about a month. And then suddenly I started to sweat, and it was all fine. But it was terrible that first time. It really was. But that was me personally. But it was very interesting to meet all the different people. Even the sisters who were out there, many of them I hadn't ever known before, mm. but I could see how wonderful they were and what great work they were doing. And um, <clears throat> it, was, it was a training school for nurses, and that was great because you could see them blossoming as they learned more and more. The students were amazing. Once they qualified, sadly, often they used to just sit around and expect the students to do everything so you know but actually the, the when we were training them they were and they were so interested i mean that's one thing that struck you you know in england a lot of people were lazy at school including myself but for them every bit of information they wanted to know they would grasp it and yeah. and really get to know it and i was there just before the biafran war and the the guy who was the chief of iboland what was his name i, I can I can't remember his name, but he came to Anwar to visit us and they had a band, um, Anne Ward, who was the obstetrician. She was very musical. She'd won a lot of uh, feshes in, in Ireland with her voice. Mm. She had a beautiful singing voice. But she also got the band set up and they were playing the trumpets and everything. And we stood on the road for about three hours in the heat before the guy arrived. And they played for him all the way down mm. and marched him in. And... Uh, and then a few weeks later, Biafra was developed. And, and but when I, when I left Nigeria, I think this, the week I left, they closed the airports. I just got out in really? time. Actually. Did you know that was going to happen? No, no idea. I was, they were sending me home anyway because of my back. They sent me to London, to Harley Street, to see this guy. Yeah. And, and he told me, uh, he, he put me on traction. But uh, that was another thing, anyway. But I went, yeah. So I was, I was stuck in Ireland from the time I went home, which was around 66, 67, until I went back to Nigeria in, nine, in, in seven. Yeah, 69 to 70, I went back. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like you've been back and forth to Africa more times than you can probably remember. Or maybe you can't yeah, remember them. No, that was, you see, my time with the MMMs was all in Nigeria. I left from Nigeria. I left the MMMs in 73. And I actually left the order from Nigeria in 1973. There was a lot of things happening at the same time. One was that I felt I, w I could do much more without the regulations that were confining what you could do as a sister. And yes, they were doing so much, really, when I look back at it, and they have continue to do so much but at that time I felt that I had ideas which were being squashed by people who didn't understand medicine because the superiors were mainly non-medical yeah. and so and that was one one reason but the other reason was my mother who had 
we had been widowed for some years. Uh, my dad had died in 55 at the age of 54. And this now was, this now was 70s. And she, she, she didn't know, but she'd had a silent heart attack and they found it on a checkup and told her she was restricted what she could do, etc., etc. Mm. And um, <clears throat> so the fact that she wasn't well and there was nobody at home because my sister Una had got married and was living abroad as well. Um, you know, the two things together made me realize that I should really get out of the place and go home to her. Yeah. So, so at that time, I, I um, so 73, I'd come back. But at that stage, I had already done, graduated in membership both in Ireland and Scotland. As, um, so I was a physician and I went back. I had gone back as a specialist physician. Mm. But because I was the only one who knew how to do the obstetrics, and there was only one obstetrician, every second night I was on call for obstetrics. And it was a difficult time because the people who did call for me had come from Norway. And they didn't want to listen to what we said, you know. An awful lot of Europeans are like this. They think they know better than anybody else. And the diabetes was completely different. And I, I had almost specialised in diabetes. I'd written diet books and things for them. And there was a new kind of diabetes coming out at the time. And it was, it's called, well, it was maturity onset diabetes in the young. They call it MODI, maturity onset diabetes in the young. Mm. And young people were coming in with this, but because they had a very high blood sugar, they were giving them high doses of insulin, which killed them. And, and so they just didn't know out. how to treat it? Hmm? They didn't know how to treat it? They didn't know how to treat it. I mean, the treatment is, is to give loads and loads of fluids, you know, and minimal, minimal insulin. So they'd, they'd suddenly go from a high one and go right down and pop their clogs. So that, I was very frustrated with that, you know, and they didn't want to listen. That was the sad thing about it. But as I say, that's my experience with the Europeans who come to Africa. They know everything and they're, they're, they're there to show yeah. the Africans what to do. And they don't realise that people who live there know more about what's going on. Yeah, you've got to be culturally sensitive as exactly. well, can't you? You yeah, can't yeah. just yeah. come into yeah. another culture yeah. and another country. And they would only come out for three months and then they'd come again for another three months and it'd be a different lot to come out. So it, that, that, was, that was quite, that was the Norwegian Red Cross at the time. Yeah. And one of the people that came out with them had been an MMM. That was a great friend of mine, still met an EGOD. She's the same age as me. And she had joined the MMMs as a doctor. And she had been great help to me when I first graduated, when the surgeon wouldn't help me with anything. She was able to help me a lot. So we, we're still friends. We're still in touch all the time. But she lives in Oslo now. Mm. But anyway, um, but she, she was able to persuade them a little bit about what was going on. Yeah. That was a very difficult time. Yeah. Wow, the rain's really, really come in, hasn't it? It's a bit noisy. Um, do, you think, do you think that you learned a lot more because you trained in different countries, especially in Africa, rather than if you'd have just stayed in the UK and, and Ireland for your, for your medical training? I've never re regretted training in Ireland because they were so caring and they had they, yeah. they also had a, I mean we didn't talk much about it, I, I can see the deficiencies in the Irish training, um, because it was so Catholic they never taught us about sex or anything about, you know, <laughs> a whole about, section of medicine, a whole of that was just, missing, just thrown out, yeah, um, spirituality came into it but you could see from the people you worked with 
Um, particularly, I remember Dr. Ivo Drury, I was his student, and you know, he was such a spiritual man, and his caring for people was obviously based on Christ, you know, and um, that kind of thing helped a lot. And I think that it was more caring possibly than the British training at the time. So I've never even regretted training in Ireland. And UCD, the university, has honoured me since then and uh, see me as somebody special still. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, I don't regret ever being, you know, being trained in Ireland. But um, the deficiencies were that they, they didn't want to talk about sex or what went on. Not only what not went on, but different sexual... I think I, I, I may have told you this, but after I had left and I met this doctor, I was chair of the Diabetic Association in Liverpool, and this doctor was the guy that discovered um, the genes that, that would make a child um, have type 1 diabetes, which is the one right. where they need insulin for the rest of their lives, you know. And um, he, he died quite young, actually, but he was, he was working in Wales, and he came over to us to give a talk, and he stayed the night, and we went out for a meal, and he said to me, I heard you were a nun. And I said, yes. He said, did you meet many lesbians? <laughs> and I said, what's a lesbian? <laughs> now that's as much as I had been taught at university or as an MMM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, I was naive and ignorant, you know, really. Yeah. You know, and this, this is me at the age of 40, probably, at this stage. And, but anyway, um, yeah, so I, I, looking back, I can see those things, and um, gradually I've had to learn from 40 onwards what I normally would have learned much earlier. Mm. Yeah. Never a Hello? Sorry? Is that Siraj? I'm fine. Who is this? It's Mustafa. Mustafa. Mustafa, how are you? your book recently while I've been uh, staying here with you um, and one section of it you say that if you weren't a, a medic you'd, you'd want to be an anthropologist is that right I said I want, if, I'd like to come back as one okay not that I, I don't think I could have taken anthropology without being interested in or having seen what I have seen yeah so you'd want you'd want first to see everything that you've experience through medicine and then mm. do something mm -hmm. through anthropology yeah what what made you think that because i think the differences in culture throughout the world and the background of of people is so important to being able to move anything in a, in a new culture you know you, you really need to understand it completely and it's so interesting it's so interesting and if we if we studied each other's cultures, we could learn an awful lot about the world, really. Yeah. And because we're so stuck in our own culture, and we think well, everybody thinks their culture is the best, no matter where we are in the world. Yeah. You know, and we get very arrogant about it. 
But we really need to understand different cultures and what benefits each culture can bring to the world. And that's why I keep stressing African palliative care because it has to be suitable to African culture and adaptable to the different cultures within Africa because you may say, okay, Kenya is different to Uganda, but within Kenya and within Uganda, there's thousands of, well, many, many tribes yeah. and they all have different cultures and different beliefs. So it's, you know, it, it, it is terribly, terribly interesting. And I think, I don't know, I don't read much from anthropologists, but they should be able to, I think, recommend where the world should go forward. You know? yeah. I feel like, from, from my point of view anyway, it feels like the world is trying to get smaller again. Mm-hmm. With things like uh, politicians talking about building walls and... Um, you know, we've we've elected to leave the um, the European Union, and uh, on multiple occasions we vote. Uh, we've we've solidified this vote to um, leave a larger union in favour of our own small country. That's to me is selfishness. Yeah. Pure selfishness. Yeah. 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 So it feels like we're getting smaller. Maybe mm-hmm. at one point the world was expanding with technology and mm-hmm. and travel where. Yeah. aircraft meant you could fly yeah, and, across and, the world and I mean when I was your age you're 30 something 27 you're 27 yeah. I hadn't even gone to Nigeria yeah. the only countries I'd ever been in was England and Ireland yeah. and Wales when I was evacuated that was it Yeah. so you know that's what 80 years ago and see the difference in, 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 in nearly every young person who's come here has been all around the world and seen mm-hmm. everything you know I guess that's because the people who do come here are used to traveling more, maybe. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you get lots of volunteers coming here from all over the world, right? Yeah, and students, you see, gap year students even come out. And they, they, many of them have traveled before they ever come out. But even, even my, my nieces, too, they, they both come out with their children when they were quite small, when they were five or something. Yeah. Yeah. So what was... what? Just skipping ahead a little bit, you, when you um, founded Hospice in 1993, is that right? Hospice Africa Hospice started Africa. in 93, but yeah. yeah. So, but you started, in, you started in the UK and then the idea was to create a model for Africa and you needed to find a host nation, right? But, but yeah, but the, the vision came really, I can say it started in Singapore when I went to Kenya, I came back to Africa for the first time after many years. And then in Kenya, it's, I realized that there's, there's, the need in Nairobi was, was in every African country, or every lower middle income country. Yeah. And that was when people started to write to me after that article in, in contact, saying, help us to do what you're doing in Nairobi in our country. So, and that's when, when I said, okay, the way to do it is to have something that will reach the whole of Africa. So the, 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 the whole thing was really started in my mind in Africa. I took a year off in England to get, to get a, 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 a group together that would support us in getting a constitution. We got a lawyer, an Irish lawyer, wrote the constitution with the people in Liverpool. He was in Birmingham, actually, but he did it. And, um, and to try and raise some money. Mm. So, but that year, I wasn't off. I was working full-time in two hospitals as acting medical director. Yeah. Both in 
You were in Birmingham, weren't you? I was in Birmingham for six months, but I was also in... The first six months were in Mighton Hammers Hospice, which is in... Oh, God, there's a university called after it, but it's actually near Birmingham, then, but it's near Shakespeare Country. Is it Stoke-on-Trent? No, Shakespeare Country. It's further south. I should, I should know that, but I don't. Yeah. Um, I probably went on a school Warwick. trip once. Warwick. I was in Warwick Town, which is far away from Warwick University, you know. Yeah. Warwick University is nearer to Birmingham. But it's Warwick Town. That's where it was. Yeah. Right in Hamlet's Hospital. And after six months there, I went to Birmingham as St. Mary's Hospital. Um, and then, so so you, the Constitution was written when you were in the UK, and then... And it was, they applied for registration, and it was actually registered in the UK in 93, and in Uganda in 94. Yeah. And then you visited lots of different African countries to see which one might be suitable to set up. Yeah, we only visited four. We had had letters from at least seven. Mm. I need to, uh, we, there is a report on the feasibility study with Leslie Phipps. Yeah. Um, but I think we we had uh, we had got letters from seven countries, but it was snail mail in those days. There was no email, and to get them to write back was very difficult. And so we came. We, we visited. We only visited. We went to Kenya because more university in Eldoret wanted us to start there, but. Kenya, the Nairobi Hospice didn't want us to be in Kenya at all because they thought we'd be taking their money. Then um, we came to Uganda and we went to Zimbabwe, really, um, not to see what we start there, but to see what they had done because they were quite successful, but they had money, so they had the morphine there, all right. And then we went to Nigeria where I was hoping to start with because I knew Nigeria only to find that they were the top of corruption and things had changed so much. And I knew that we'd never get funding in Nigeria because of the corruption stage. Yeah. Whereas Uganda was at the bottom end. At the time, Museveni was the darling of donors because he pulled the country out of war and he was beginning to build it up again. He was doing a great job, actually. So, you know, and the people needed us because they also had HIV AIDS, like really. It was the first country to declare that they had a calamity with AIDS, and it, that had doubled the cancer incident. And we really came in for cancer, but by the second year we took on AIDS. So just AIDS, AIDS, end of life AIDS. Yeah, the 24 are from the original six that we Getting back into our respective cars, have a drive, then afterwards we get out, then walk to the line. Small are going to be said when we reach there, but in Karakas, Mustafa, how are you? And when you started, it was, you, you were starting from nothing, weren't you? So, you yeah. know, now there's a, there's, you know, four, four buildings, there's lots of cars, there's, you know, hospices in a big compound, but when you started it, it was you in a car and a and a, and a loan of a house from the nuns in, in Zambia yeah. and this house was two bedrooms and had a front room the patients on the couch in our front room where we had our meals and everything yeah. and we had a little kitchen at the back with a store and we had hens and we had a turkey that was given to us by a grateful patient and the, every night it was I, I, I just couldn't believe it because every night 
the, the hens and the turkey knew who they belonged to and they would come into the house and get into the store and sleep there for the night. And there was, there was a row of houses and we were just one of them. And all of them had their own hens. I think and they all went to the right houses. And they'd never seen this before in their life. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Our turkey was white. It, it had come to us because we had a, a lady, a young woman, she was only 19, with an osteosarcoma. In, she was in the orthopedic ward. And they'd asked us to take her over. And the, her uncle was staying with her, and he begged us to take her home. And we said we would take her home. And she lived in a place called Kumi, which means 10. And Kumi is beyond Mbali. It's wait, you go towards the border and then keep going. And um, so we said we'd take them home. And we went to, to pick her up in the morning. It was me by myself. No. Fazal was there. Fazal was going back for Christmas. It must have been just before Christmas. And when we went to pick up her, she died. And then we said we wouldn't go, but the uncle cried and cried, said we've got to get the body home, and it cost us a bomb to get that body home. So we, 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 we put her, and the Land Rover was that short. Yeah. We based one, you know, so to get the body in was great. But luckily she had into a mortar, so we were able to fold her up a bit. So the uncle sat in the back with the body, and myself and Fazal sat in the front, and I drove. Oh, I think probably the two of us drove down, you know, and we, we went to this place. It took nearly a day to get there. And when we got there, there was all wailing and shouting and screaming because we brought the body home, you know. And so and then we turned around to come back, but I had to drop her at the border and then I had to drive back from, what's the name of the place? Malaba, Malaba, border. And I had to come back here by myself with, with the Land Rover. And it was a few weeks later that he suddenly arrived at the to 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 in Zambia hospital with this white turkey under his arm, present from the family. <laughs> <laughs> and that it was the only white turkey. It was a big compound in Zambia hospital, and they had loads of cats that kept breeding all over the place. And they also had turkeys, and the turkeys were all black, and they all wanted to have white turkeys like mine. You see, and they used to call them Mazungu turkey with the Mazungu. And at night, if that turkey didn't come out, I'd go out and pick it up and bring it back on the arm. Everybody was laughing at me. And uh, anyway, they, they never got that. It, it was a male, I think, but they never got a white turkey from whatever. It must have been a recessive gene. They'd had because they, never, they never got a white turkey. And when we were leaving there, I donated that to the nurse tutor who lived next door, who was Catherine Iwallo, who eventually joined us. And she was the one we talked about the other day that was the first retiring. Yeah. And um, Catherine took the turkey. I'm sure it ended up in the pot somewhere. It's quite funny that you had got a white turkey. Yeah. It's quite uh, <laughs> the the Mzungu. Mzungu with the white with the, the Mzungu turkey. turkey. Yeah. And what what role does morphine play for you? I know it, it plays a, an in, an incredible role, and it's the the basis of the the pain care. The pain relief side of um, and it's the, palliative it's the, care. It's, 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 it's the affordable pain control that has allowed it to move to Africa because when we came, the, the first country to get it was Zimbabwe. They were rich enough, there's a lot of white people. It started in 79 and they were able to buy oral morphine from outside the country. The second country started in 1980, that was South Africa, and they again were the richer country. Then there was a gap of 10 years, no, nothing happened. 
until Nairobi Hospice started. Now that started by a lady called Ruth Waldridge, who was the wife of Mike Waldridge, who was a BBC correspondent based in East Africa. And they lived in Nairobi, and she had seen, she was a nurse, not a palliative care nurse, but she saw cancer patients coming home from the hospital being told there was nothing more they could do and dying in terrible pain. And she knew there was Dame Cecily Saunders that started this thing, and she started Nairobi Hospice. And she got she got a committee in UK, got the registered in UK, and she got the funding to start it off. Now, one of the people on her committee in UK was working with Robert Twycross, who was quite a well-known guy in palliative care. He was, I call him the first son of Dame Cecily because he was the first one that really came out of St. Christopher's and was, he wrote all these books, which are amazing books on introducing palliative care, etc., etc. And he's done it for many countries. But he, um, she was a, a PA to him, I think, and they came to Singapore when I was there, and he, they came out with me on home visits. And she was on the board here, and they were looking for a medical director for me, and I was about to finish in Singapore. And she asked me, would I come? They, they would ask me, and they would bring me out to be interviewed. So I, I said yes. I would. I was. I was very keen to get back to Africa. Mm -hmm. So I went. They invited me, and I went to back to see that. And they were in this little wooden hut, and there was just um, one. There wasn't even an African nurse. There was an African administrator and two Mzungu nurses there. Um, sitting in this hut and they were trying to see patients at home and they took me to see patients and the strongest that anybody could have was paracetamol unless they were, were rich and then they could afford codeine that was the most they had and um, the Indians were the ones on codeine they could afford it but the, the, the Africans themselves couldn't so I said I, I would very be happy to come but I wasn't going to come until they got in morphine. And I told them that, and I left them my book, which is, I had written on geriatric medicine. In the back, I had the formula for oral morphine. And I also had the training program that we had in Nigeria. Now, I left in 19, this was 1990. I had left at the end of 1990, and by May 19, no, the end of, no, at the beginning of 1990, by June, they wrote to me and said, we've got in the morphine. And the, the, the man who was the head, the chair of the board, was an oncologist who had the first pediatric children's ward in the whole of Africa. And he had, he had gone and got the government to agree to bring in the powder. And it was being made up in the private hospital, which was Nairobi Hospital, because the lady on there was also on the board, the pharmacist. She was an Indian lady, and she had agreed to make it up. So it was being made up there. And they had started to use it, using what I had put into the book on geriatric medicine. And they'd even started training. So then they, they asked me to come. And uh, so I went out at a, a very much lower salary than I'd been on in Singapore. I can tell you, the Singapore salary is keeping me still going, but that wouldn't keep anybody going for very long. But I did get housing. They paid for housing for me. And um, so... So then I went there and we, we did a lot of training over that year. But the, the same guy that had got the, in the morphine was very resistant to 
We can, yeah. We're just, um, we're just doing a bit of an interview, Amber. If, if you need something. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He he um, he was quite an arrogant guy, and he he lent his car to Nairobi Hospice, but they were paying for it every day. But he would then come in and demand that a car and the driver to take him when he had to go to meetings to show that he was a big man. Now, um, that meant that we couldn't do home visits and there were sick people being left and I was objecting to this and he didn't like me objecting to anything because I was a woman. Mm. And um, they, they didn't call me the medical director, they called me the health services coordinator, which I didn't mind what it was called as long as I was doing the work. But then I found out that there was a reason for that was he didn't want to recognise that I was a specialist, you know. And um, anyway... I, I did teach some of the university students, but he, he, he was resisting me all the time, and it, it, it was a big struggle, really. And, um, and in the end, he, because he was chair of the board, he complained to the board, and the board decided to put Bridget in charge and me to be answerable to Bridget. Now, Bridget was, had worked in the government all the time, had a very bureaucratic approach to everything. Mm -hmm. And um, she was a nurse, and she she was learning palliative care from me, and now they wanted me to be. And I went, I, I, I said, I've had enough of this, this is, you know. And um, I, at this stage, I had already written, the article was getting the letters coming in. And I went, I went to see a, a, a solicitor, and he said, look, this happens in Nairobi all the time. Anybody from outside is better than somebody inside. They do this. So he said, he said, I would leave if I was you. He said, I advise you to leave. And so I put in my resignation. They were very angry. But I, I left them. And then I gave them notice and I left at the end of my notice. And Paul Hawkins was with me and it was during that time that I came into Uganda with the thought in mind, possibly to make it a thing. And we went down to Katoga and stayed with the MMMs and, you know, Mm. and saw what was available here. But we didn't meet the Minister of Health till I came back from the feasibility study. Um, did, you, did you come across that a lot in your journeys um, to, to where we are now in terms of ignorance and opposition from yes. pro, mo, mostly males probably? Who, yeah, it who, is. Even, even here, the, the, the doctors in Malago, um, the, the, the head of surgery was allowing us to teach and they... They were saying that we were bringing in euthanasia, we were bringing in oral morphine for patients, we were killing them off. And Leslie came out as a member of the board in the UK and um, they, they, they were having a, a surgeon's meeting and they said they wanted to meet Leslie and they didn't want me to go to that meeting. So Leslie goes into the meeting and I'm outside waiting for her and she comes out and she said, she said, they wanted me to tell you to stop using morphine. <laughs> and Leslie's a social worker, but she knew all about this, you know. And we were laughing, you know. So, yeah. but, but luckily, Professor Kakande, who was the professor of surgery, he was strongly with us at that time. What were your, what were your approaches to um, those sorts of barriers? Because uh, you've, you've obviously got through a lot of them now because we're sitting here and you've founded hospice and um, thousands of patients have been helped mm -hmm. through your methods. So what were your... What were your how did you get through those barriers or how did you deal with well, those you know, adversities? The, the, the older the older 
group of doctors never came to terms with it at all. Yeah. And even their colleagues, they allowed them to die in pain rather than call us in. It was terrible to see. It really was terrible to see. Even at one stage, the chair of the board, her father was dying. She's a lawyer. And her chair of the board, and the father was dying here and they wouldn't allow him to have morphine. And Why we, not? Just because they were scared they of it. Killing him. Yeah. So they, they, they transferred him to Nairobi to get some special tests done to the Nairobi hospital where we, we had been making it. And, and they gave him morphine. And he, straight away he was so much better that she came to us and she said, will you look after him at home? We'll bring him back home. But then they decided he was so much better that they'd give him radiotherapy over there. And he died. Mm. He never came back. And so Angela still gets a Christmas cake every Christmas. Her, her brother is a brain surgeon now. And the father was a brain surgeon. Yeah. And he died in agony, you know? Well, he didn't die in agony because he died over there when he was on the morphine. But he couldn't die at home because. Yeah. My, one, of the, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you was about death. I mean, most of your career has been you know, dealing with and helping people through the last moments in their life. Um, what's your what's your relationship with death or your, your thoughts on death having done all of the work you've done up till now? Well, to me, death is, is a part of life. It's, you know, it's, it's a natural process. And I don't know why we're all so scared of it and we're all trying to delay death. Mm. Because the thing about it, life is it's the quality of life that you have, not how long you live. And this is where medicine is all wrong. I go to conferences and everybody is talking about how they extended life so much. And you read that book, Do No Harm. Yeah. Have you read it? I have read Do No Harm, yeah. That's, yeah. Um... yeah, it's there. Because that guy brings out this message that we can keep people alive as long as we like. But he went and then he met some of them later on, people he'd kept alive. And he was sorry he'd kept them alive because the mm. quality of life was so terrible. This is, this is Henry Marsh, who's, who, yeah. who's retired now, I think, but one of the top surgeons. Yeah, he was a brain surgeon. And he, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really interesting book, isn't it? Is. It is, very interesting. And that's, you know, I mean, it, it was a message that I hear. When, when I go to, to conferences, cancer conferences, and they're all so proud they've extended life so long, but nobody talks about the quality of the extension of life that they've given. Mm. And I certainly would not be wanting my life to go on forever and I'd be disabled or completely dependent on everybody around me. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm ready to die if I get pneumonia, which was the old man's friend and now nobody believes it is and they, they cure everybody of the pneumonia that should carry them away. You know, I'd say, just leave me. But mind you, in geriatric medicine, I. I found when I was in geriatric medicine, people in long stay wards who were Alzheimer's and, and, and in the fetal position in bed and being tube fed to be kept alive. Mm. And they got pneumonia and they were pumping antibiotics into them and making them really ill. And some of them survived and some of them died. And if we didn't give them anything at all and just kept them comfortable, they lived still too. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really... We've just got to think of the quality of life and making every day, it's not just looking at the whole how long they will live, but making each day as comfortable as possible for people who are at the end of life. It's a, it's a hard one, I think, because often when people get to the end of life and maybe they're not um, 
maybe they're not as with it as they used to be, their families are around them making decisions for them. Exactly. And they're the ones who want to keep keep their family members alive because they don't want to go through the, the pain of losing them, right? But that person might be in, you know, might not be able to communicate. With them. Well, you have that with some families, but you have the other thing. Some families want them to go. Mm. The money is there and every time if they're in an old people's home, the, the money is to... It's deteriorating all the time because they're paying thousands to keep them in those homes. So, you know, some people say, well, it's not my mother anymore, you know, let God take her. Yeah. And some of them would even think about euthanasia, you know. Mm. I, it must be so hard, though, because if, if the person isn't able to communicate their own desires. Yeah, but that's life. why it's so important to have somebody who's got, um, what do you call it, who can take take legal decisions when you're unable anymore? I have somebody for years, David Phipps is the one, who will make decisions for me if I am unable to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what is it, the power of attorney. Power of attorney. And you need to get that done, and it needs to be kept renewed, actually. I think um, it, it, the date has gone through, he needs to renew it again now. You know, but they need to renew, it needs to be kept renewed so that if you die suddenly they're, they're unable to, to say what is necessary you know yeah my dad my dad always tells me to as soon as he gets to a stage where he's not he's not with it anymore he said take me to a ski slope and let me go down and jump off the end of the cliff that's what your dad that's said. what he wants he doesn't want to be in a, a home he just wants to Snowboard yeah. is way no, to death. No, I just want to be. I've been all over the world and seen homes. I've never seen one yet where I would like to end my days. You know, in Singapore, they've got this wonderful establishment, beautiful big, big building, and I think they have something like three or four hundred hours really there. And the sisters have kept saying to me, do you come to us when you need care? And we look at it. I, don't <laughs> well, I don't want to go near any home. Yeah. I, I don't I don't want to but I mean I know you see these girls will look after me no matter what yeah. you know but you know it's it's um, yeah it's 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 hard because none of us know you know when death will come or whether it will come suddenly or whether it will come mm. slowly it's none of us know and we just have to trust in God well I guess we know we don't know about death but we do know about life so we may as well fill our lives with yeah. the things that we want to do and and yeah. the happiness that we can that we can achieve rather than worrying about death that is yeah but I, th- I think the happiness that I have seen in my life has been from helping others mm. and I think that's the biggest thing that we need to do is how can we help those around us and it all come I, I really believe that it all comes back to you I believe that what you give away will come back and what you give to other people you'll receive and it does. it's clear to see here because you have an amazing family around you you have um all of the things you need to live a comfortable life yet mm-hmm. you've spent rather than spending your years gathering things like a lot of people do whether it's mm-hmm. money or possessions mm-hmm. you've given all of those things away yet you you know yeah. everything has come back to you and that's a really amazing example of yeah. of um of that theory i think yeah it's just true things do come back and it's but i get mo- see i don't do home visits anymore because a lot of these pa- patients live in inaccessible places that i can't walk to mm. and you know the car often has to stop and then you ha- i can remember the last time i went on a home visit it was terrible really and um, just to get to it but once i got there i was delighted i'd gone 
But the thing is, it's the joy that you get from patients. Now, I see them at daycare, and that's when I do talk to them. And I have an attachment with several of the children that have been with us for many years, and they're survivors, really, now, and they still come to daycare. But it's the, it's the joy out of, that comes out of those people that is, is more than any money, I think. And I think the nurses would tell you that. You know, but it's so important that we appreciate what they do. I really feel that the nurses and the, the people who are hands-on with patients need to be appreciated mm. for them to, you know, to, for them to stay in there. And so it's so important that the whole team is caring mm. and no matter, no matter what level they... You see, sadly, money levels people. Mm. So you get people on the highest salaries are thought to be the highest, and they're not really. They're doing a job just the same as everybody else. Yeah. yeah. But the nurses and the clinical teams are doing that, and the, and those who are teaching, that's about the, the the most important people. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a great message for Christmas as well. It's Christmas Eve as we're recording this, and. I can actually hear Christmas songs in the background firing mm -hmm. up. So I, I feel like we, we maybe should leave it there. And yeah. I'd like to say thank you for giving yeah. some time today. It's been really nice to okay, have thank this you. conversation with you. It's going to help me write my book too. <laughs> and yeah, we'll go and have, have, a, have a lovely Christmas. You've got, you've got all of your family coming the for the first time. The first time in 26 Christmases that I have merriments with me for Christmas. Yes. Where's the cat? He's outside. Thank you, Vicky. But yes, um, very Merry Christmas to you. And I'm sure we'll have a lovely time tomorrow. Yeah, we will. Yeah. And even tonight, I think it's going to be a nice time. It'll be lovely, yeah. yeah. All right, then. And thanks so much for coming.